thank you. That, that was good. I like that. Um, <coughs> I didn't know Dr. Massey died, though. It's, uh, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. He was, uh, actually, he spoke at my baccalaureate at Wilmore. That was a long time ago, 1991, so, or 94, so it was a, a long time ago when we used to have baccalaureates. That's what I was thinking, too. For years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah, great, it was a great preacher. So. Yeah, this, this is one of those familiar texts that um, we, we hear it so often that I think sometimes um, it's one of those ones you can just kind of race through in a way because we already know what it says. It's the great commandment. Yeah, of course, we're supposed to love, our, love God and love our neighbor. Um, I want to try to burrow down a little bit uh, more into that and give a, just a couple of thoughts um, uh, today. But let's, uh, let, let's pray over the scriptures. Uh, Lord, we are grateful. We're thankful for the chance to be here. Uh, we thank you, God, for the reading of your word. And we pray now that it would uh, um, imprint itself upon our very hearts, our very minds, um, our beings, so that we might uh, truly become all that you created us to be, uh, love you with all that we are, and then uh, take that good news into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've been thinking about a lot of different uh, uh, topics lately, but one of the things that's really um, been on my heart, it's come out in, in my teaching recently, um, it's all, Melissa was just in Old Testament last week, and uh, some, of, some of you, if you had, some of you have had me for OT 520, um, you, you've heard some of the thoughts that I'm going to share, but I'm going to try to pull it together into a message. And I also want to read a New Testament passage, and then we're even going to read from the Song of Songs, and maybe even do a little sermon out of there too today. So, because when, when does that ever happen, right? And, and what does that have to do with loving God? We thought it had to do with loving someone else, right? Uh, um, but five twenty, First John five twenty one. Um, it's interesting how John ends his letter, and John's letter is all about God is love, um, holiness. Uh, loving other people, uh, keeping commandments. And then he, he just has this really interesting way. He says, uh, little children, uh, keep yourselves from idols. And you're like, what? You haven't talked about idolatry the whole way through the book. Or perhaps he had. Um, so we get back to the, the Shema. And I want, I want to look at this a couple different, uh, different angles. And first, um, and I really did like the, I guess it's that came out of the voice, um, a, a specific translation. It's one of the issues ends up being, what does it mean when you have in Hebrew, it's, it's here Israel, two words, but then the rest of it, it's Yahweh, God's name, our God, Yahweh again, and then the word that means one or maybe alone or something else. You literally only have four words and two are God's name with our God and one. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that that can be translated, uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's all kinds of different um, uh, angles there. And what's, what's the particular um, take that Deuteronomy is doing? Is it saying something ontologically about God, that God is one? Or is it saying that only God is our God, so it's more of about allegiance or a singular commitment? That's where like the NRSV and other translations have um, Yahweh alone. Or is there some way to combine all of those thoughts? Or um, is it something else altogether? Because the response to who God is, is love, right? And so what is it saying about God and how might that uh, influence the way that we live our lives. And if you have your uh, Bible and you want to look at Song of Songs, and I don't know, this probably flip there too often, but we want to look at a verse in uh, chapter 6. <clears throat> this is quite interesting because this is the uh, 
Because the word one is, you know, Greek and Hebrew aren't necessarily abstract. So like the Hebrew word for one actually means one. As in, you know, O-N-E, one, right? And so, you know, what does it mean that the Lord is one or the, or the Lord alone? And what's uh, quite fascinating is there's a parallel passage that looks like one is functioning in the same way in the Song of Songs as it does in Deuteronomy. I just want to give you another angle because it's easy for us. I mean, probably the most gutless thing you can do in any worship service is claim that God is your God right? Because we already know that. God is our, the Lord, it's King Jesus, we only have one God. But the reality is, is in our world, that isn't true. There's all kinds of competing ideas about who God is. Uh, just in our spirituality in, in North America, you can use the word universe in a way that's equivalent with God. So, you know, the universe was on my side. I prayed to the universe. I mean, the Paulo Coelho's book, The Alchemist, he always talks about if you want something with all your heart, the whole universe conspires to help you to get it. That's pretty typical spirituality now. Or you can say, uh, like my daughter goes to Universal with her friends um, from high school. They get to the top of the hill on a roller coaster and the cars start going over, and they're screaming, Allah, help us, because their friends are Muslims, right? Our little friend comes over to my house. Um, uh, she's a Brahmin. Her, her father's actually the priest of the Hindu temple that's down in Kissimmee. He's the one that actually built it. So she comes into my house quite often, nice young lady. Um, she has a cross around her neck, believe it or not, and she always goes, Papa Russell, that's what she calls me, I'm Papa Russell. I just love Jesus so much. He reminds me just of Krishna, and, and she, she rolls off all these three other deities that she worships in Hinduism, and in her mind, there's literally no problem with that whatsoever, and it's just interesting, and she even wears a cross, like she, and she talks about how much she loves Jesus, but she's pulled Jesus back into this mix of soup of these different spiritualities. And so the Shema, when we really hear it the way it is, it's cutting against the grain and actually making us really confess something more that it's, it's so easy to roll off the lips. God is our God. Jesus is the only God. But, but is he? Now, enter Song of Songs. Wonderful love poem. Um, and uh, Song of Songs, uh, if you go into chapter 6, uh, this is one of those... Uh, Great poems that, uh, you know, you should always use to um, romance. If you're a man, romance your wife by telling her teeth are like the flock of ewes and uh, <laughs> your cheekbones are like the half of a pomegranate and all the, everything that uh, um, a 21st century woman would just love to hear. See, if some words you should have. We had a guy getting married this Saturday. Some tips, <laughs> tips, keep the romance alive with this kind of stuff. But, but what I'm really looking at, look at verse 8, because this, this is the parallel text of the Shema I want to suggest. Um, because again, this guy is praising this, uh, this woman for her beauty, right? And then, and then he says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. Then he talks back to the woman. Uh, my dove, my perfect one, is the one and only. The darling of her mother, flawless to her that bore her. The maidens saw her and called her happy. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. And this, this is the exact word that we have. Yahweh uh, is our God. Yahweh is one or Yahweh alone. It's the word that's translated in Song of Songs 6-8, one and only. 
And that gives us a real insight here when we're talking about what does it mean to confess the Lord is our God. It's to confess the Lord is our God um, in a context in which there's other legitimate options. Because again, this guy's praising his, this woman as his one and only, but she literally isn't the one and only. He's got options. He's got 60 queens, 80 concubines, and as many women. So this is like a rock star or something. He's got his choice of all these options, but he's picked one, the one and only. And so there's something. And, and so what I want to reflect on today, if we want to, if we want to capture a Shema spirituality, we have to start owning up in our own lives what the other options actually are. And I'm not talking about Allah or Baal or Molech or Zeus or any other mythological god. It's what would be the other options in our own lives. Because the command here now is once we've decided that Yahweh, God, King Jesus truly is the one and only, the response is love, which is interesting, right? Because how do you command someone to love somebody, right? It's something, but if in fact someone is truly your one and only, love naturally flows out of that though, right? And so um, the command in the Shema is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's your traditional translation. I think that came out in, in the reading. But that also can be somewhat misleading when we, when we hear those words because this isn't essentially picking three aspects of our lives and saying that we're going to commit those things wholeheartedly to God. These are actually rings. You want to see this as like a, a ring with the center of the ring being you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. And heart doesn't mean emotions. Heart isn't the feelings necessarily. And for, for Hebrew, and this is true in, um, in, it would, in, in Greek in many ways, is heart is talking about, would be better translated to the mind actually almost in English. That's why in the New Testament when you look at the four Gospels and you see essentially four different ways of, of restating Deuteronomy. So if you don't know that, go check it, take a look. Go look at all the places where the Great Commandment shows in the New Testament. Look at the different um, words that get used there. And they mix up heart, mind, strength, uh, soul. Heart. I mean, they're all kind of floating around in there because they're trying to move from the Hebrew to the Greek idea in the right way. And so, uh, love the Lord God with all your heart is actually a, uh, is essentially a, a, a call to be fully committed to God with all of our intentions, our will, our thinking capacity. It's to intend the one thing. And here's the kind of scary thing. This is a holiness school, right? We're Asbury. We believe in entire sanctification. We believe in perfect love. In a sense, the way that Wesley, I'll give you your Wesley quiz here. Paul's Choco's not here, so I can get away with all this stuff now today. Uh, it, you know, the, the way that Wesley defined um, kind of perfect love was to what? Intend um, the right things or like a sin. Anybody remember what's sin properly so-called to Wesley? What's a sin? Uh-oh, nobody's taking TH-601. Right, doesn't, maybe you don't know this, but Wesley defined sin. He did this in a, for a really a practical reason. He suggested a sin was an um, intentional breaking of a known law of God. So in other words, um, a real sin, he's not suggesting that there aren't other things that are little sins, but a real sin is knowing 
what you're supposed to do or what you're not supposed to do and intentionally doing the opposite. So if you're going to love God with all your heart, you would intend what God intends, which is pretty much that if we could do that, we'd be entirely sanctified, essentially, right? But Deuteronomy says, kind of like, remember Emeril Lagasse, or whatever his name is, a cook, he used to, he, he, it wasn't spicy enough, so he goes, we have to spice this up. He throws some more spices in there. Again, I know they pulled his restaurant out of Universal down here, so we don't know who he is. Yeah, Emeril. Remember good old Emeril? He'd, he'd, just, he'd, go, he'd go, yeah, bam, that's what he did. He'd put some more pepper in there or whatever. So Deuteronomy goes, bam, it's not enough to have our will fully surrendered to God. There's more. And it says soul. And, and, you know, and soul in Hebrew isn't the same as we mean by soul. Our conceptions of soul in some ways are, are very much more platonic. They're very much influenced by Greek philosophy. In, in the Hebrew Bible, the word that gets translated soul, nephesh, is our body. It's all that we are. We're, so we're sort of, an, if you want to think of it, we're an embodied soul. So the word soul isn't some spiritual part that you could pull out of a person. It is the person. So each one of us is a living soul, a living nephesh. That includes our flesh, our blood, our, our hair, or lack thereof, um, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's everything that you are. So the next step up from giving God your will is giving God everything that you are. And before you say amen, because that's kind of scary, I said everything that you are. Everything inside of you, good, bad, ugly, shameful, embarrassing, humiliating, all those kind of things, gifts, graces, and also what Wesley talked about, infirmities, right? Because you could potentially be all for the Lord and still not be the kind of person that anybody would ever want to hang around with because you can have a nasty edge to you that are infirmities, you don't intentionally sin, but because of stuff that happens to you or happened to you or choices that you make or, you know, different things that have happened, you got stuff that you just, that you get, that gets squirrely that you really don't control. It comes out of your unconscious. But the Deuteronomy text, if God is really my one and only, I'm going to de-elevate all those other options and I'm going to love only God. And so that means, like, here's a thought. Have you ever thought about the sins that you have a hard time overcoming your whole life? And you ever love those and learn to love those as part of who you are and gave them up to God? And wouldn't those things suddenly lose their power over us if the thing that you were the most ashamed of, uh, you actually learned to love it? Not, not um, and I don't mean in a, a sick way, but you just recognized it for what it was, and you realized that God actually loves you that much, that God really is your one and only, and that little thing that's kept you from loving God as the one and only, because that little thing just becomes part of what we worship along with God. You have all these different pieces, because, you know, in Deuteronomy, when it's saying God is my one and only, it, well, there are options, right? Like, and I, I can love my messed up part of myself more than I love God. Um, I can love my children more than I love God. I can love money more than I love God. We can run through a whole litany of things. And by the way, all those things don't have to even be bad things, right? My, are my kids good things? My kids are usually good things, I think, right? Uh, 
no, I'm, I'm just teasing. Um, but we have all those different, all those different um, pieces. They don't have to be bad stuff um, because the things that the gods represented in ancient Israel weren't bad things necessarily. I mean, because what did the ancients have gods that represented? They, they, they represented things like um, um, happiness, um, security, um, sexuality, um, family, um, marriage, um, fertility, uh, wine, food. I mean, you run through, there were gods of war. I mean, so there were things that were parts of life. And it's not that they're bad things, but it's in the Old Testament. Those things become on the same level as who Yahweh is, which then does what? It cheapens Yahweh, and it suggests that Yahweh really isn't our one and only. So when we talk about loving God, uh, I would want us to think a little bit about what else do we really love? What competes with God being our one and only? Because again, God says love him with all of our intentions, love him with our nefesh, all that we are, but Again, there's one more, bam. It's not loving with all your strength. Um, that's the traditional translation. But if you love God with all your intentions and all your body, then what's left? Maybe it's that metaphor where you give 110%. It's that extra. Because in Hebrew, that literally the text reads, all your very much. You know, commentators go on to say that's your property. It's things outside of yourself. So it could be. But in a sense, this is just, I would almost say it's hyperbolic in the sense that it's saying um, give, love God with everything that you are and then some. Which means there's really not room for the 60 queens, 80 concubines, maidens without number. Make a conscious decision. And so what is it that we love um, outside, of, uh, outside of God? Uh, that's a question that each one of us ultimately needs to answer. And, you know, I would suggest, um, I mean, I've uh, been doing some uh, interesting practices the last uh, couple of years that I found have been profoundly shaping um, in my own life that have broken loose a lot of junk and have helped to identify all kinds of different gods that I've been worshiping most of my 49 years, actually. Now, I'm not going to give you a play-by-play -play litany of all those deities, um, if you really want to know, you can come to my office and I might tell you. Uh, <laughs> but what I've basically been doing, it's been really fascinating, and this has been a formative practice, is I've, I've been practicing centering prayer for a while now, which is a Christian, um, which is a long-standing Christian form of um, sitting in silence before God and praying without words, essentially. And what you do in the practice of, of centering prayer, and I've done research, and I actually found out that my experience was... Um, helpful because, you know, I'm kind of, some of you know I'm fairly honest and don't and have sort of a no BS approach to God, spirituality, and everything. But my problem with centering prayer is when I would sit there in silence, um, instead of encountering God, which is, I thought was what was supposed to happen, I encountered all the worst parts of myself. And I would sit there in silence waiting to enter this contemplative time where, you know, God, maybe God was going to speak to me, and my mind would race to things that I would be embarrassed to share with you or ill thoughts about another person. And I started thinking, oh, my gosh, instead of meeting God, I'm running into demons. And I mean that in, in a metaphorical sense of demons, right? 
Then I started reading books about centering prayer, and I found out that our forefathers and foremothers who did this, people like Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and the Desert Fathers, they actually talked about meeting the demons in the middle of these prayers. But there aren't demons at all, because guess what you're really meeting? Yourself. It's that shadow part that lives inside of us. You know, the holy side has a dark side, and Carl Jung and his psychology looked into all these things really deeply and richly, and so we all have these shadows that are inside of us, and the, and the extent to which you can become aware of your shadows, to me, is the extent of allowing yourself to be opened up to God's grace to actually be able to love him the way that the Shema does, calls us to, because you can release all the darkness, because what I've done, what I've discovered from Centering Prayer you know, at first I was like, I'm terrified, because I would write it all down in my journals, all the stuff that I was seeing, and, and then I thought, oh my gosh, this is awful. And, and then I realized, maybe it was time to learn to love the shadow. Not because we want to say, hey, live your life like this, but then you realize, you know what, this is part of me. And I got this, these shadow parts of myself, some of the things that I did myself that I probably were really bad choices at different points in my life, and a lot of the stuff that we get for our, on these shadow parts are ways that we were abused or hurt by others, sometimes not intentionally. We get it from our parents. We get it from society. You can get it from a local church. You can get it from um, a bad relationship. All that acquired junk that you get creates these unconscious patterns, scripts that we live out. Things trigger us that um, you, don't, and you don't mean it to happen, but you kind of don't have total control of what you do or say. Um, that's the shadow. But isn't Deuteronomy actually saying love God with all that stuff too? And maybe the way to becoming the person that God really created us to be, a person whose heart is overwhelmed with love, a person who can look at God and say, that's my one and only. Maybe the point is, is we can get to that process by opening ourselves fully to God so that we really can learn to love God even with those dark recesses of ourselves. Because here's the scary thing. Those dark recesses that we all have, or maybe it's just me. I'm, I might be the only one. So this, maybe this is a confessional sermon, actually. So I'll just own it for myself. Maybe the darkest parts of myself are actually deeper clues to what I really love than my easy stand-up-in-chapel say, I love God. And if I'm not aware of those things, um, then maybe I can't love the way, and maybe that's why where idolatry actually comes from, because we create these other pieces. Now, Deuteronomy has an ingenious way of working through that, and, and again, it, it came out really well in, in the reading. You know, Deuteronomy 6 has um, kind of humorous, really, about put, writing things on your head, putting it on your hands, putting it on doorstops. It's um, essentially talking about habits, though, right? There's a book that um, I just ordered, but I love the title, so I hope it's as good as the title. It's called You Are What You Love, and it's a Christian book about the power of habits, right? And so Deuteronomy suggests um, and, you know, and this isn't just you know, literally slapping up, you know, this isn't saying like, my new hat. Help you with your posture, I guess. That would, I need help with my posture, so it would be good to walk around with a Bible on my head. But that's not really what it's saying, right? It's actually trying to get Scripture inside of us as a way to shape us and to push out 
um, that all the junk. And so we want to look at our habits that we have. Because there are, there are things that we can do that are going to increase our capacity to love God. And, you know, the, 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 the dirty secret is that there's really no secret. These are things that we all know, right? But it's, it's how do you approach them? I mean, do, I, oh, I, do we just read Scripture to read Scripture? Uh, do we pray just to pray? Uh, do we even do centering prayer just to do that? Do we fast? All of those things are certain kinds of habits that create a certain kind of person. I mean, that's the key piece. Because, you know, when that shadow comes up in your life, um, you know, you, you, don't, you can't control it unless you've already incul- know what, been able to see what it is, name it, and inculcated better habits that let you get a hold of it when the time comes. It's kind of like this. If um, I mean, actually, anybody watching the World Cup? Not today, right? We're missing all the games. I successfully ruined my World Cup by scheduling two intensives and doing something else here in July. But you know, when you watch soccer, I mean, you pick your great player, whoever the best player is in the world. I mean, and you see, you've seen some, you've saw the highlights. You've seen some fantastic work. Now, if you want to be a guy that can a ball come 50 yards and they stick their foot up and it just looks like they caught it with their two hands, they just stop the ball. Um, they practice that, say, 25,000 times, maybe, because it makes it look easy. Or if you like baseball, a guy that steps up and hits a home run against a 90-mile-per-hour fastball, or probably even harder, um, I mean, more difficult, would be against a curveball, has done it a gazillion times, right? That's what the Deuteronomy's picture of habits really are, right? We can't be ready for prime time. You can't step up in soccer, hit a penalty kick when the game's on the line. You can't um, stand back against your own shadow unless you've been in a series of habits that done over time. And it's one of those little things. You're not going to see it the first day. I mean, this is hard when you're teaching, like when you take IBS, when you take IBS class. People go, oh, I can't get it. I'm like, it takes time. You just got to do the little bit of stuff every day, right? And, and that small things done consistently over time yield extraordinary results. And the reality of our habits are really simple. I and mean, you can break it down this way. We all have habits, right? This is just like our shadows, but can you name them? And you think about everything you do, how you spend your time every day. And this isn't a guilt sermon at all, but, but you want to think about it. And think about two destinations, heaven and hell. Think about every single thing that you do every single day. And I'm, I'm using those as metaphors. Um, um, but some habits lead one way. Some habits lead the other way. And Deuteronomy is a call to become intentional, recognize that God is our one and only, and that to, to build up a love for God with our whole being is about making little small choices on a moment-by-moment basis with the long-term vision that a certain set of, of patterns, a certain set of practices, practiced long-term, creates the kind of person that witnesses to, God, to the world the reality of, look, there's unlimited options for things that I can love. But there's only one that I've fully given myself to as the one and only, and that's Yahweh. And you can see how that has lived out in my life. So, friends, um, what is it that you really love? And only you can answer that. I want to love God with all that I am. And I'm going to find every part of my life 
that doesn't love God, that competes. And then I'm gonna, someday I want to be able to stand back and say, look, there's 60 queens, there's 80 concubines, there's unlimited maidens, but that, Yahweh, Ching Jesus, that's my one and only. And I'll say amen to that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we are grateful, and uh, we pray now as we do uh, think about a familiar passage and what it would really look like to, to love you. And, and God, uh, I have no doubt that every single person here truly, truly, truly um, wants to love you with everything that we are. And, and God, our a simple prayer here is um, I'll make it for myself and uh, um, with with no assumption that it's for anybody else, Lord, but uh, help me and show me um, all the darkness in my own life so that I can bring it into your uh, marvelous light and healing grace uh, so that my heart can uh, be wholly yours. That's my prayer for my friends here today, God, and we pray that uh, each one of us then can be that good news uh, to another as we go forth uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.